Good evening. I'm glad each one of you is able to come out again. Uh, as I thought through this study again this week, uh, we're coming to the end of the book of James, the end of these sermons, uh, the end of the series, really, uh, of going back to the basics. And I wanted to say uh, that it really has been a joy to go through this book with you. Um, and I, I mean that sincerely. Uh, you've been a really enjoyable group to preach to. Uh, and I can say that because I teach the teens. <laughs> but I do mean that. It's very true. Uh, I've really enjoyed preaching to you and, and learning along with you. Um, there are a lot of times where God is doing clear things in our midst. Uh, and it's, it's exciting to be able to be a part of that. Uh, Paul cautioned Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 that some would resist Timothy's teaching and that he may even suffer hardship because of it. Uh, but I can confidently and thankfully say that you've been very receptive. Uh, you've been uh, even encouraging to me, uh, and I appreciate that very much. Let's start. We'll just go to this. It's been, uh, this study has been a really clarifying study for me. Uh, I don't think I'll probably ever forget the book of James and a lot of the things that I've learned. Uh, and I hope that it's been that way for you. Hopefully it's been encouraging for you as well. Uh, but I thought tonight as we start, uh, the last few weeks we've done a lot of review of specific points. Uh, and I thought that this week, instead of going over specific points of our study, uh, we might just note the major theme from the book of James and see how we've seen that in each chapter. I'm curious, I know I don't usually do this, but since it's Sunday night, uh, I'm curious, what would you say uh, the major theme of the book of James would be? Anyone can just shout it out. Faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead, I agree. I think even broader than that, it could be a little bit. Uh, I would just say, yes, you look like you're about to say something. No? Okay. <laughs> I look at Logan, because Logan's always the one that I, I look to, and I go, oh, here we go. I wasn't sure if you were talking about me or what. I was, yeah. Did you have something you want to say? I was going to say basics of the Christian life. Okay, basics of the Christian life. I would agree. Uh, the major theme that I see in the book of James is tests of genuine faith. And faith without works would definitely be a part of that. Um, and the basic aspects of our Christianity definitely would test our genuine faith. But I wanted to look through some of these chapters tonight and just do a little bit of review that way. James 1, 22 through 27, we see genuine faith proved through obedience to God's word. James says that a hearer only of the word deceives his own self, and whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he says that one is the one that shall be blessed. He later says that a man that has true legitimate faith will bridle his tongue, he will have compassion toward those who can't be expected to repay, and he'll keep himself unstained from the world. The first half of James 2 gives us the test of genuine faith that's seen clearly uh, in for someone who has genuine faith in their lack of partiality or their lack of favoritism. Uh, those who are kind only toward those who can reward their kindness are said to be judges of evil thoughts, while true, true children of God are known because they don't judge those who appear to be less. Christians know and obey the commandment to love any person around them as much as we love ourselves, or we should be obeying that commandment. Then verses 14 through 26 in chapter 2 gave us the key to finding out if someone's faith is genuine by juxtaposing descriptions of a dead faith in front of examples of a living faith. The one who has a dead faith continues to be selfish. He lies. He's full of hypocrisy. The living faith is one that repents and has faith in the one true God. And then that faith is acted out in obedience. We saw that in the examples of Abraham and Rahab. A test of genuine faith is whether or not someone follows their profession with a lifestyle that's aligned with Scripture. Chapter 3 showed us that genuine faith is proved through a tongue that is putting forth the wisdom that is from above. James describes that wisdom and that tongue, therefore, to be pure, peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. Chapter 4 taught that genuine faith is proved through simple humility. Humility is such a key aspect of every true Christian's life because it's how we first come to God. We come in humility with nothing to offer. 
We say no to the thrills and fun of this life so that we can serve our Lord. The best we can do uh, in terms of repaying God uh, is to offer our lives as a living sacrifice. Secondly, humility is such a key aspect of every true Christian's life because we continue to be wicked, rotten sinners. God doesn't view us that way, but we realize that that's really what we are. The only change is our position. We've been saved by grace. We shouldn't be prideful to have high positions. We can't be prideful to judging others because there's only one judge and lawgiver, James tells us. And we can't be prideful in our own conceit as we presume upon God's goodness to us. We also saw that the genuineness of our faith will be seen in our wisdom. We depend on God when we need things, so not to depend on him for each day of life is incredibly hypocritical. We depend on him in the little things of life by just obeying the simple commands of his word. And the result is an ever-deepening relationship with him because we experience firsthand that God is a help, he's not a harm. And the result is that enhanced relationship and a waning relationship with the world. Amen. So we come to our final chapter of James tonight, and we'll look at chapter 5. This chapter of the Bible might be one of the most helpful chapters of the Bible in terms of a Christian's mentality for life. There's a very simple question that a lot of people who have been saved have to answer. It's a pervasive question, and it takes some serious mental efforts, uh, as well as grace from the Holy Spirit to work through. I've talked to many people about it. I've worked through it in my own life on various occasions. The question is this, is it really worth it to be a Christian? I think probably every true Christian has to work through that at some point in their life. Is it really worth it to try to keep doing this life? It can be such a difficult question to answer, but James 5 is going to give us some great counsel on the matter. We're going to start by reading verses 1 through 6 of James 5. We'll pray, and then we'll get into our final study for this series. James 5 Verses 1 through 6. He writes, Go to now, you rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you, and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. You have heaped treasures together for the last days. Behold the hire of the laborers who reap down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Ye have lived in pleasure on the earth, and have been wantoned. Ye have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. Ye have condemned and killed the just, and he doth not resist you. Let's pray, and we will get into our study. Heavenly Father, as we again gather around your word, I pray that this time would be a time where we can have everything else in life put away except what you have to say to us. Uh, I pray that your word would be clear and powerful. Uh, we know that it cuts like a two-edged sword, and we know that it will never return void. Uh, and I pray that you would just give me wisdom as I speak. Help me not to be a distraction or to get in the way. I pray that you would just guard, uh, guide my spirit as we go through this study. And I pray that uh, the ears of all tonight would be open and receptive to what you have. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Like I said just a moment ago, this chapter is really, really helpful for Christians navigating our world. However, that section we just read does not seem to be very encouraging. I would submit to you that if we understand this difficult first section, the rest is going to open up very nicely. James begins by showing us yet another test of genuine faith, and that test is having right priorities. Our priorities are very important to God. He tells us several times throughout Scripture that our priority is to love God and to love others. He had instructed his chosen people to always have his word at the forefront of their minds and their lives. Right priorities are highly under attack today as well, and it's so simple to distract us. Our world doesn't even have to put sinful things in front of us to get our priorities off kilter. Our world can put something like a sports team that we play for, academic pursuits, family time, or a position of leadership in front of us. And although none of those things are evil, I would argue that probably most of those things are good. Those things in and of themselves can cause us to sin. In these first few verses, James continues his instruction from chapter 4, but this time he addresses it to rich men and begins by showing us 
uh, as letter A says in your notes, the worthlessness of temporal riches. He begins by saying, go to now you rich men. If we remember back to the rest of James that we have already covered, we've gone over it several times, so hopefully we recall that James is writing to Christians. He addresses the brethren ten times through chapter four, and he'll address the brethren another five times in this chapter. But he starts this chapter by addressing ye rich men and tells them, go to now. Or maybe as we would say in our language today, listen up, pay attention. This is important. The question is, though, who are the rich? The rich are those whose God is money. We know from 1 Timothy 6.10 that it's not money that is the root of evil, but it's the love of money. The rich people that James is addressing are not serving the Lord and just happen to be given great resources from God. These people are clear unbelievers who live their lives with the goal of reaping physical rewards. How do we know that they're unbelievers? If we look at the context of this section, uh, it's very, very clear. We know that they're unbelievers because the context of this section speaks only to condemnation, misery, worthlessness. He uses the words misery, corruption, moth-eaten, cankered, or as we would understand it today, rusted, eating flesh like fire, slaughter, condemnation again, and then he says even killing the just. There is nothing in there that sounds remotely close to repentance and faith or even to returning back to God from sin. These rich are undoubtedly unbelievers whose riches are worthless. However, I think that gives us another question then. Why would James, in a book clearly written to Christians, take several verses and address the unbelievers? If we keep in mind James' overarching goal of proving someone's faith by going back to basic commands and principles, it's very simple. He's trying to help Jews that have been spread abroad through persecution discern between legitimate and illegitimate faith. If he's doing that, then that probably means there are ones in the church with illegitimate faith. There are unbelievers in the church. A second reason would be that there are patterns already set by God, and James is just copying those patterns. Uh, two psalms that are wonderful psalms, if we ever get stuck in a mindset where we're, we're struggling with envying the rich, uh, is Psalm 37 and Psalm 73. It's very easy to remember because you just flip the numbers around. But they're set in the middle of a book, which uh, in this book has the purpose of trying to help believers grow in Christ. It's showing who God is. That's what the Psalms are. It al the Psalms also provide comfort and peace through difficult times. But these Psalms, 37 and 73, are actually quite violent because they talk about the judgment of the wicked. And they also talk about how we shouldn't fret because of them. Listen to some of these examples that come from these psalms. The wicked shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as a green herb. The wicked plotteth against the just and gnasheth upon him with his teeth. The Lord shall laugh at him, for he seeth that his day is coming. The wicked have drawn out the sword and have bent their bow to cast down the poor and needy and to slay such as be of upright conversation. Their sword shall enter into their own hearts and their bows shall be broken. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places, thou cast them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation as in a moment? They are utterly consumed with terrors. In the book of Amos, Amos writes concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. We see that in chapter 1, verse 1. But then we get to chapter 8, and it's all about the results of unbelievers. In books addressed to believers, God himself clearly warns them. He's done this before. James is doing nothing different. He's taking a second and addressing and warning the ones that may be in that church that aren't believers yet. Lastly, James might have written this to the rich to keep us from envying the rich. We'll see more of that in the next main point, but I, to understand, uh, excuse me, now that we understand who and why James is writing to I want us to look at the worthless nature of those riches. If we think back to Matthew 6, we see Jesus teaching in his well-known Sermon on the Mount. He says in verse 5, When thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are. It sounds very familiar. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. The hypocrites are double-minded men. We've seen them all throughout James as well. They want to be seen of men, and they do receive their reward. They're seen of men. 
How helpful is that reward? It has no lasting impact on life. It's pointless. It's worthless. James explains that the nature of these riches is corrupted, moth-eaten, and rusted. I think all of us would say with great certainty that we don't want any of our possessions uh, to be characterized by those words. The word corrupted occurs several times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament and is used in relation to rotting flesh or wounds filled with pus. The idea of something being moth-eaten shows that something as pointless, flimsy, and killable as a moth can destroy things that mean so much to us. And growing up in southwestern Pennsylvania, I can give you really painfully clear examples of rust on the bottom of cars or anything else really. The clear point of this passage is that the temporal riches of the unbelievers will become disgusting. They'll become worthless, even to then. Turn with me quickly to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. background in first kings 3 solomon asks the lord for wisdom and in verses 9 through 12 we find this conversation solomon says give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people that i may discern between good and bad for who is able to judge this thy so great a people and the speech pleased the lord that solomon had asked this thing and god said unto him because thou hast asked this thing and hast not asked for thyself long life, neither hast thou asked riches for thyself, nor hast asked the life of thine enemies, but you have asked that for thyself understanding to discern judgment. Behold, I have done according to thy word. Lo, I have given thee a wise and understanding heart, so that there was none like thee before thee, neither after thee shall arise like unto thee. In this passage in 1 Kings, God gives high praise to Solomon uh, because of Solomon's choice. Solomon wanted the simplicity of wisdom from above. But then we come to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2, and Solomon writes, Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That is quite a shakeup from the passage we just read. Then we jump down to chapter 2 where he turns, and we'll read verses 3 through 11. I sought in mine heart to give myself unto wine, yet acquainting mine heart with wisdom, and to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was that good for the sons of men, which they should do under the heaven all the days of their life. I made me great works, I built me houses, I planted me vineyards. I made me gardens and orchards, I planted trees in them of all kind of fruits. I made me pools of water, to water therewith the wood that bringeth forth trees. I got me servants and maidens, and had servants born in my house. Also I had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. I gathered me also silver and gold, and a peculiar treasure of kings and of the provinces. I got me men singers and women singers, and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments, and that of all sorts. So I was great, and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my portion of all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun." That is an extremely depressing passage. That is what the wicked deal with in their own minds. That is what the ones who seek after physical gain in this world, whose God is money, that is the type of lifestyle that they live. That is not one to be envious of. We can also think of 2 Samuel 13, where we see the story of Amnon's sin against Tamar. Amnon wanted to have immoral relations with Tamar, and when he finally hatches a plan with his wicked friend Jonadab, and takes what he wants, he ends up hating that which he wanted so much that 2 Samuel 13, 15 says this, Then Amnon hated Tamar exceedingly, so that the hatred wherewith he hated her was greater than the love wherewith he had loved her. And Amnon said unto her, Arise, be gone. Those who seek after physical things 
at the end of it, don't even want them. They realize how pointless they are. Sir Martin Frobisher was an English privateer who did some of the first mining in Canada. He got really excited by a sparkly rock he found on Kudlunard Island during his first voyage to the New World. He got other, excuse me, he got other people excited too. I'm getting excited. And they gave him money for another voyage. He returned to Canada in 1577 and opened the first Canadian mine, shipping back 200 tons of what he found. His sparkly rocks got the queen's attention and she sent him back in 1578 with lots of her money so that he could get even more. He shipped back 14 tons of that stuff in July and August. Shipwrecks claimed some of his cargo, but the rest made it to the smelters in Dartford. When it went through the purifying process of smelting, it turned out that his shiny rock was nothing more than pyrite, a shiny mineral commonly known as fool's gold. Unbelievers may look like they have everything they want. They may look really happy. But the reality is that the things of this world look appealing to everyone. They're just fool's gold to us. They're worthless. If the unbelievers truly have everything they want, then why did the Pharisee from Luke 18 that we saw this morning go back to the temple to receive more of man's praise and recognition? Why do successful athletes have such a hard time retiring? It's because their stuff, their recognition, they get to the end and they realize it's just fool's gold. It doesn't mean a thing. It looks shiny, but it's worth nothing. The final exhibit of the worthlessness of temporal riches is seen in the first verse of chapter 5, and that's the misery that is coming for them. This word for misery occurs again many times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament and occurs most frequently in the major and minor prophets. If you know anything about the major and minor prophets, that should be enough to give you cause for hesitation. This word misery also occurs in Romans 3. Paul quotes Psalm 4 and writes that there is none that understands, there is none that seeketh after God. They are altogether become unprofitable. Their throat is like an open grave, their tongues are full of deceit and the venom of a serpent. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, their desire is to shed blood, and there is no fear of God before their eyes. Then Paul writes this. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. Destruction and misery are directly in front of the path of those that seek after temporal riches, and they can say they have peace, but Paul attests that they don't have true peace. And I think Paul would probably know, because he lived that life before being converted. James 5, verse 3 says that they have gathered treasure together, like the Lord is not coming back. He says they have gathered treasure together uh, for the last days. Peter warns in 2 Peter 3, 3, and 4 that thinking that the Lord will not come back is characteristic only of the one who is destined for judgment. James then shows us not only the worthlessness of temporal priorities, but he shows us the witness of these temporal riches. Let's again read verses 3 and 4 and we'll continue. He says, Your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you, and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. You have heaped treasure together for the last days. Behold, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. This point is the final reason of why James might address unbelievers toward the end of a book written expressly to Christians. James writes to remind us that God will avenge every wrong. This Greek word for witness is where we get our English word martyr. It's commonly translated testimony in our Bibles today. It has connotations of a courtroom setting in which the witness will cry to be our modern concept of a smoking gun or maybe an eyewitness account. And James says that this smoking gun or this eyewitness account is the rust of their possessions. And it's not the first time that God's word records inanimate objects speaking. Jesus tells us in Luke 19 that rocks would cry out if his followers were silent. God told Cain in Genesis 4 that Abel's blood cried from the ground. Their fraudulent activities also cry out to the Lord of Sabaoth, begging to be avenged. And one question that I have here is who is the Lord of Sabaoth? And why is he the one that's being cried unto? This phrase, the Lord of Sabaoth, is a transliteration of a Hebrew title for God that meant literally Lord of Hosts. Hosts refers to the armies of heaven. The armies of heaven we would understand to be angels. So we can think of this title in our modern language today as commander-in-chief of the armies of angels. 
He's all-powerful. He can destroy what he wants. But he says, James tells us that the Lord of hosts hears and sees all. He's aware of every true injustice that's done against us. And someday, those injustices will be avenged. You can think of this title and warning as if James were saying, you best watch out because the all-powerful God is watching. James says not only that the Lord of Sabaoth is aware of every injustice, but the rust itself is a witness against those for living for temporal pleasures. And like a consuming fire, the rust shall eat their flesh. Despite God being all-knowing, James writes that the spoilage of their immense possessions shows the Lord of hosts that their treasure is found here on earth. Because their treasure is here, they've lived lives of fatness and leisure. They've laughed and scoffed at truth and workers of truth. And their punishment is to be consumed with fire for all eternity. That's not something we should rejoice in at all. The only thing that it should do is wake us up and help us realize that it's time to get busy. I'm going to read a quote from one commentator. It's a terrifying and it's a harsh, excuse me, it's a terrifying and harsh reality. But it's one we must recognize. Commentator says, hell never stops. After a year, after 10 years, after 100 years, after 1,000 years, after 10,000 years, after 100,000 years, after a million years, after a billion years, they will still be in eternal damnation, no closer to the end than the day they started. That should give us some sincere wake up. Let's make a quick and sobering application and then we'll move on. If the riches of the wicked are worth nothing, if they're gonna be disgusting to them, if it's going to send them to hell, why would we ever want to be like the rich? Why would we ever seek after the things of this world? The simple answer is that in our hearts, we don't. We don't envy worthless stuff and we certainly don't envy eternal damnation, but our flesh is strong and we're consumed with pursuing the things of this life. Let me give you one illustration and we'll move on. Chick-fil-A is one of my favorite restaurants. I love Chick-fil-A. Over the last several years, Chick-fil-A has been in the top 10 of fast food chains when it comes to revenue. They've been about the same in their terms of profitability for each year. Chick-fil-A has not had their employees work on a Sunday that I've ever heard of. For the fast food business, the name of the game is being open for more hours than sit-down restaurants, and yet they've been in the top 20 in terms of revenue and profitability for years. Here's the point. In an industry where hours open increase revenue, Chick-fil-A is more protective of the Lord's Day than some Bible-believing Christians. Their priorities, at some level, are right. To be blunt, that's kind of a disgusting thought that Bible-believing Christians can be worse than a fast food chain. Maybe we could say grimier than a fast food chain. How can we say, though, that we love God and then live in a way where it's clear we're pursuing anything other than a deepening relationship with Him? A wise man once said to examine where you spend your time and where you spend your money, and you will immediately understand who or what is on the throne of your heart. What is the priority? James continues in the next few verses, encouraging us to a rooted patience and living the right way by reminding us that Jesus Christ certainly is coming back. Look down at verses 7 and 8 with me. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it until he receive the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. On the back of verse 6, we skipped over this uh, just a few minutes ago, where he says that the unbelievers, the wicked, those that seek after temporal riches, condemn and kill the just, and the just does not resist them. James exhorts then on the back of that and encourages us to patience, through the reason for patience followed by two examples. The word patience we've seen several times as we've gone throughout the book of James, but it comes from two words that means long and anger. And it doesn't mean that we're angry for a long time. It means that we're that it takes us a long time to get angry. The reason it takes us a long time to get angry is because we're to be focused on the coming of the Lord. The coming of the Lord is the singular greatest hope that a Christian has. We can endure anything that comes our way because we know that one day Christ will come back. We mentioned earlier that unbelievers scoff that he hasn't come back yet. 
But as John MacArthur notes, Jesus himself referred to his second coming many times in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25. That points to the seriousness and longing attitude with which we should view Jesus' second coming. If that's not enough for you, Jesus' second coming is referenced in more than 500 verses throughout our Bible. This has got to be a big deal to Christians. It's our hope, and it keeps us accountable. Then James gives us two examples of patience. He first gives us the example of a farmer or of the early and late rains. This is a really good example because it shows how long the farmers had to patiently wait. The early, arrive, excuse me, the early rains arrived at the time of the fall planting season, around October and November. And the late rains come just before harvest time in March and April. When my siblings and I were young, we used to love going over to my grandparents' house. I still love going to see them. But I remember specifically when we were young, uh, we would go over to their house frequently. They lived just a few minutes away from us. Uh, and my grandfather always made sure that we had a lot of fun. He would keep us busy. And uh, grandma made sure that we were never hungry. I mean, never hungry. Uh, and she also made sure that we did not go to her bed dirty. But sometimes we would get bored, my siblings and I, and we'd ask, what can we do now? And they'd say, well, let's go sit outside and we'll watch the grass grow. Watching something grow is patience that I have rarely seen. Uh, I know my siblings and I definitely did not have it. We'd be out in the yard running around or throwing things at each other or something like that. But James doesn't only encourage us to have that type of enduring patience of literally sitting and watching something grow. He also commands us to establish or strengthen our hearts. How do we do that? James is talking in the realm of spiritual health, so we know he's not talking about things for our physical heart, like omega-3 fatty acids or something like that. The idea of spiritual strength goes completely against the commonly thrown around let go and let God lifestyle. Philippians 2, 12 and 13 says this, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. We are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, realizing that God is working in us. That can be a little bit confusing sometimes. But one commentator clears it up this way, and this is a brilliant quote. I would write this down for sure. Christians are to live as if everything depends on them, realizing all the while that it all depends on God. James gives us another example in verses 10 and 11 when he cites the examples of the prophets suffering affliction and them having patience. He says that it goes so far that we consider those who suffer affliction and show patience to be happy or blessed by God. The only other time this word is used in our Bibles is when Mary says generations will call her blessed because she's bearing the child of God. It's important to note the context in which James is giving this comfort is a context of suffering for the Lord. The suffering does not include suffering because of our own foolishness or sin. Observe what, first, excuse me, what Peter says in 1 Peter 3.14. He says, if ye suffer for righteousness sake, happy are ye. And be not afraid of their terror, and neither be troubled. James also references the life of Job, as well as two of God's attributes that are pity and mercy, to conclude this section. If we remember the life of Job, we remember that while he definitely endured horrible things at the hand of Satan himself, it's stated in chapter 1, verse 22, that in all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Then we get to the end of the book, and the final verses of Job record that the end of Job's life, I'm going to skip over reading all of that through, but the end of Job's life ended up being so much better than the beginning of his life. What's nice for us is that we can just fast forward through the life of Job, but we can't really do that when our, when our lives are the ones uh, that are under stress. It takes long, stressful minutes of time to endure a trial like the one that Job faced. Those long, stressful minutes are why James continues with a reminder we need regularly, and that is the character of God. He says our God is compassionate, he's merciful, and it's a beautiful close to this section. Just as a side note, uh, if you're ever in a place in life where you are the one that's in the middle of the trial, go to Psalm 136. You will not be confused at the character of God. Last week, we covered false swearing when we looked at ways we sin with our tongue. James deals with this in chapter 5, verse 12. 
But with, since we've covered it already, we're going to jump to verses 13 through 15, where we'll see our final main point of regular prayer that helps each Christian's mentality. It fits perfectly on the back of James's exhortation to patience and strength of our spiritual self. Let's read verses 13 through 15 together, and we'll continue. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the Lord, excuse me, and the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. This passage of scripture is another one like the faith and works section that has potential to be a little bit confusing. Uh, to be quite honest, it's confused many people for centuries. It's led the Roman Catholic Church, as well as charismatic denominations, to greatly misuse this passage. Let's start with the simple parts of it, and then we'll dig into the depths in just a minute. I know we're getting toward the end. Hang with me, we're almost there. The first thing James instructs is that the suffering must pray. Each of us goes through suffering at times in our lives, whether it be conflict with a person, a deadline that we can't hit, or difficulty in our physical or spiritual lives. So what I want us to consider on our own hearts tonight is this. What is my default action when suffering of any kind comes up? Obviously, we can see what James tells us our default action should be. But I want us to think about what our default action was maybe last Thursday so that we're not cheating. Maybe we get really quiet and we try to come up with a plan. Maybe we lash out and explain to someone why we're stressed. Maybe we go find a friend and get counsel on what we should do. Or maybe we just distract ourselves with some type of amusement. I wonder, though, how many of us could honestly say that when suffering comes, our first thought is to pray. My hand would not be up, ashamedly, and I would imagine that that would be the case for many others of us as well. I likely get around to praying at some point, but it's probably not the first thing that I would do. James teaches in this passage that if suffering comes up, or I should say when suffering comes up, the suffering one must pray. The word James uses is an imperative, which we understand to be a, com a command. If, if any among you afflicted, he must pray, would be a good way to interpret it. The second thing that James instructs us is that the celebrating must praise. Each of us also goes through seasons of life that are filled with joy. Sarah's brother and sister-in-law just recently had a baby, and her cousin is getting married this next week. They'll be traveling, uh, and we're looking forward to it. Sarah's parents came back from Hong Kong, and so this season of life has been filled with a lot of joy for us. Uh, God has been very good to us. But if we ask the same question from our last point in the opposite way, what is my default action when times of celebration arise? I wonder what we say then. Maybe we just enjoy the moment. Maybe we just we document the seasons of joy with pictures and videos. We talk about how wonderful life is to all of our friends in an attempt to spread positivity. James says very clearly that when we are the one who is celebrating, we must sing praise. If we look back at James 1, and we don't need to turn back there, and we look at verse 17, James tells us that every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. The action James says should accompany the joyful times of life is to sing praises to God. We can do this practically by making sure that we are spiritually and audibly thankful to God. It's that simple. Another way, to give, another way would be to give testimony to others of how good life has gone with the express pr purpose of showing the goodness of God. The most obvious way that James says is just simply to sing praise to God. There have been moments in my life I can remember extremely clearly during which I felt so full of God's truth that I could do nothing but put good, godly music on and sing praise to God alone. And it's a wonderful and sweet time. The last thing James instructs in this section is that the sick must petition. This last sec section is the one that can tend to be confusing. And it's clear that many good and spiritually wise men differ on their interpretation of what it means. But they're also usually pretty solid on what it doesn't mean. But we're gonna, I was going to have us read verses 14 and 15, but for sake of time, we'll just keep moving. Uh, we understand that he says, uh, if anyone is sick 
that they should call for the elders and anoint with oil, and the prayer of faith shall save the sick. If we start by trying to just get rid of the clear confusion spot, I think it will help a lot. This passage does not mean that if someone is sick and we have certain leaders in our church pray for them in faith, that they will be healed. It does not mean that. We need to only look at life to understand very simply that it is not God's will to heal every Christian who is sick. There have been great Christians who have had many people praying for them who haven't recovered from a certain illness or injury. This passage also doesn't apply that anointing with oil would heal anyone. Then let's look at the context and three words in verses 14 and 15, and I think this passage will clear up very simply. The first thing to keep in mind is the context of James 5. In verses 1 through 6, James is writing so that we are not envious of the rich in our minds. In verses 7 through 11, James wrote to us to endure difficulty in life by focusing on spiritual things, this, the fact that Jesus is coming again, focusing on the character of God. We understand then simply that James is writing to us in a spiritual context on the power in this section and the need for prayer. The word sick in verse 14 is a Greek word that is, I'll, I'll give it my best shot, it's athaneo. It is translated most commonly weak, but it can also be translated sick. What I did in my Bible is I jotted down the idea of weakness next to this because it helps clear this passage up quite a bit. The word sick in verse 15 is a different Greek word. It's the word komno, and it's commonly translated weary. We've seen this word used in Hebrews 12 in a spiritual context when we're told to lay aside the weights and the sins that beset us, look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endures such contradiction of sinners against himself. Here's our word, lest ye be weary and faint in your minds. These ideas are perfectly in keeping with James to pray to God during suffering and praise God during celebration. Lastly, the phrase anointing with oil can be confusing. I'm going to get just a bit technical, and I know that's a terrible idea when you have 10 minutes left. But if you can just stay with me, I think you'll walk away with a lot of clarity from this passage. To anoint with oil is not the command that is given to elders. The command that is given to the elders is to pray. The phrase anointing with oil is a participle phrase, which at the very simplest form just tells us it's not the main point or it's not the main command. The Catholic Church has a sacrament that they call extreme unction. If I understand it correctly, when one of the ones in their church is very sick, they perform this ritual in which they put oil on several places on the body and they bless the one who is sick. The exception, again, if I understand correctly, is that they can place it only on the forehead if the sick one is extremely near death in a display of urgency. Like I said a moment ago, though, the problem is that the phrase anointing with oil could be thought of more like a footnote rather than content to apply. I would also submit to you that often in our Bibles, the Holy Spirit is explained to have a role of comfort and salve, like the role oil would have filled in a medical sense in James's time. Since the phrase, in the name of the Lord, follows it without break, it seems like the anointing with oil is a spiritual encouragement rather than a physical prescription. Amen. Lastly, in Bible times, to anoint with oil was to strengthen, encourage, and refresh a person. We said that this is a participle phrase, and participles are usually descriptors or modifiers in our English, English language. If the leaders are the, of the church are praying for that one, it makes perfect sense that their anointing with oil in the name of the Lord could be in a positive phrase describing the effect that their prayers would have on the one that is weary. I would say, however, that the elders probably should have naturally in their hearts to look out for the simple needs of the one. Maybe taking a meal to their house, helping them with the task around uh, where they are, or edifying them face-to-face. -face. Again, I know that was just a bit technical, so if we simplify it, I think it will help a lot. The spiritual principle that James seems to be teaching is this. The one who is weak and weary in his mind to the point of desperation, and maybe even sin, should call for the leadership of the church to pray for him. There's nothing really that mystical about it. The whole section has been on the power of prayer, and these two verses are no different. 
James continues in verse 15 that the prayer of faith shall save the sick. Sick is the same word from verse 14 that we interpreted weary. And there are two implications to this verse. First, the phrase shall save can mean to awaken, in which case we can understand the person who has ultimate weariness, or maybe we could just say it simply spiritually dead. This prayer of faith could be the prayer that saves him and awakens his soul for the first time. In this case, the fact that the weary one's sins will be forgiven him makes perfect sense. Second, the phrase shall save could mean to restore. If we think of it that way, it makes perfect sense in the context of James's instruction to Christians. As one commentator puts it, through the righteous prayers of godly men, God will restore his battered sheep's enthusiasm. In this case, we can know that the prayers will definitely be answered in the affirmative because we know that it's God's will for his people to live lives of joyfulness. After all, the second fruit of the Spirit that should be present in the life of a believer is that of joy. We know God's will is for us to live lives of joy. On the back of that promise that the prayer of faith shall save the sick, James commands us to confess to each other and pray for each other. Uh, I believe in, uh, let's see, verse 15. Uh, nope, that's not it. Verse 16, it is 15. We understand that that last promise is contingent on our, prom or on our <coughs> prayers for those that are weak. So he concludes that the effectual, or in the Greek, energeo, where we get our word energetic, that fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. We so often use this statement in the context of accomplishing great things for God, right? The, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man. But that's not really the way that we're, we're thinking about a little bit wrongly that way. We can accomplish great things for God, but we accomplish those things by ensuring that each one around us is living in a way they ought to, with a mindset that is enthusiastic to love and serve God. James ends this section with the illustration of Elijah. Elijah was a man just like us. He says he was subject to like passions as we are. He had good days and bad days. Sometimes he woke up and his back hurt. He was hungry. He was afraid. He was depressed. But he was a praying man. And his energetic prayers led to spiritual change in the nation through the drought that highlighted the power of God. So what's the point of this section? The point of this section is not anointing with oil. The point of this section is just like we heard this morning. Pray without ceasing. Pray all the time. When you're sick, when you're celebrating, when you are uh, suffering, uh, he says pray all the time. I think one thing that's very interesting to note is the cycle of prayer. When we in faith pray according to God's will, he answers our prayers. Those answered prayers lead to increased dependence, and that increased dependence leads to more prayer according to God's will. That additional prayer leads to even more dependence. And around and around it goes and becomes more and more powerful. People often will say things like, well, I just need to work on trusting God a little bit more recently. If you want to trust God more, pray more. Prayer, according to God's will, is one of the most beautiful things that can be used to deepen our relationship with God. To close tonight, I want to leave us with the exact same thing that James leaves us with to close his letter. And I want us, again, as we have done these last four weeks and continue to do tonight, to keep in mind James's context. He's been writing to Christians who want to live for God. This final chapter makes it very clear that James, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, desires for each of us to go back to the basics of our faith and grow into the fullness of what God wants for us. There's a quote from the 14th century that goes something like this. Mighty oaks from little acorns grow. And it's the same with our faith today. James writes this to close his letter in verse 19. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth a sinner from the error of his way shall save his soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. If we understand correctly that James is writing to those who desire to be strong in their faith and those who want to make great progress for the Lord, we understand him to be instructing us to help and look out for one another. We've seen that our prayers can accomplish so much if we'll just lift up one another to the Lord. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12 that when one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. He also says in Galatians 6.1, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, 
Restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Maybe some of us have gotten to the end of this study, and we would say, God, you do it in our lives. Praise the Lord. If we could honestly say that before the all-seeing eyes of God, then James gives us one final, very clear instruction that we must not ignore. When our body hurts, nerves carry the message to our head, and we try to take care of that issue. Similarly, when a part of our spiritual body, which is the church, is hurting through sin or hardship, we each have the responsibility to take that to the head, which is Christ. And then we pray that he helps us guide that one back to a right relationship with Christ. It's an imperative straight from the mind of God as to what our responsibility is. We must live our own lives right with God, and then we must attempt in a loving way to restore others that have strayed. It can be daunting to try to confront one who is strayed, but if we'll go back to the basics and just start obeying the small commands of Scripture, it will astound you at how much you desire to help each one uh, that is a part of the body of Christ. James balances so many things in this letter. He balances our responsibility with divine power. He balances obedience and grace, faith and works, and the list goes on. Here's the most amazing part of this whole letter. James is just repeating the words of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. On the back of your handout tonight, I've included the parallel passages from the book of James to Matthew 5-7, through and I would encourage you to do some digging for yourself. Check out the parallel passages and see what James is saying. See that what he's saying is just simply what Jesus had said earlier. And James has found to be absolutely correct and extremely basic in what's required of us. James's context this whole study is a context of comfort and instruction to separated and persecuted Christians. When we begin to struggle in life, let us not give up. Let us instead return to the basics of our faith, those things that separate us from those whose future is bleak. And let's employ the simple instructions found in the book of James and all throughout God's word to restore and maintain a right relationship with our Savior. Let's close with a word of prayer, and we will be dismissed this evening. Heavenly Father,